0: This podcast includes frank discussions of mature themes that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast is intended to provide encouragement and support through personal storytelling. The views expressed are the opinions of the participants and not intended to be medical, legal, clinical, or professional information or advice of any kind.
1: Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Welcome to the Bubble Hour.
2: Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Welcome, 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 welcome welcome, welcome, to the Bubble Hour. I own it, I did that, not proud but that was me, and when I face it, I take back a little dignity, not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from power, weakness head on.
0: Jean McCarthy and you're listening to The Bubble Hour. Hello and welcome to The Bubble Hour Archives, a treasure trove of episodes ranging from 2012 to 2022. I'm recovery advocate and author Jean McCarthy. I joined The Bubble Hour as a host in season two. Together with other hosts over the years, Ellie, Lisa, Amanda, and Catherine, we all extend to you our gratitude for listening and a heartfelt wish that this podcast will find a welcome home in your recovery toolkit. The resources mentioned on the show are available at thebubblehour.com, including information on the online support group called the BFB or Booze Free Brigade, often mentioned on the show. Now, if you're hearing this message, you're listening to one of our free archived episodes, and we'll make sure that there are loads of these available for you to enjoy. These are partial versions of the original recordings, and if you want to hear more, you can listen to full versions and the entire back catalog ad-free by joining us on Patreon. So just head to patreon.com slash thebubblehour to learn more. I'll also put a link in the show notes to make it easier. Even easier for you to find that. So, all right then, enjoy the show. Hello, this
3: is Ellie, and welcome to Blog Talk Radio, where uh, real women tell real stories of addiction and recovery. And we are thrilled tonight to have a uh, special guest, Sarah Ellen Benton, who is the author of um, the book *Understanding the High Functioning Alcoholic*. And she's been featured in the New York Times article by Jane Brody, and has appeared on the Oprah Winfrey Show, CBS Early Show, NPR. She is a blogger for psychologytoday.com and many more activities, too numerous to mention in a short period of time. She is also a, a licensed mental health counselor herself and a therapist at McLean Hospital in Massachusetts. She is ha- a recovering alcoholic herself who has been sober since February of 2004, and we are absolutely delighted to have you on our show tonight, Sarah. Thank you for, for being um, available for us.
4: Thank you, Sarah. Well. Thanks. It's an honor to be here. I just I really admire the work that you all are doing and just increasing awareness and around women's issues and alcohol and substances. It's just it's a necessary topic at this day and age.
3: Thank mm-hmm. you. Yes, we couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Well we were hoping maybe for the start of the show, if you want to just share a little bit about your own story and your background and then we can get into some questions.
4: Sure. So yeah, I began drinking when I was 14 years old and I immediately was drinking too much, <laughs> I, I remember blocking out my first time that I drank, but, you know, on the flip side, I was doing really well in high school and I had a lot of friends and I loved high school. I was having a really good time and I drank very socially and at parties and, of course, I put myself into dangerous situations right from the beginning, but that mm-hmm. felt very normal felt like something that was just part and parcel of drinking, and because I blacked out and, and had memory lapses when I drank, I didn't remember some of the dangerous situations I put myself in. But to me, you know, I, again, was doing well, and I therefore I didn't think there were, was a problem with my drinking patterns at that time, and I hanging out with people that drank the way I did. So, you know, moving on to college, I of, I chose a college based on very important criteria of it had to be a party school. And yeah, it yeah. has to be really far away from home, and it has to uh-huh. be a really pretty setting. So that was those were my big my big priorities. And I, found, <laughs> uh, I
2: knew,
4: but the University of Colorado fit that criteria perfectly, and mm-hmm. I got there and I thought I had arrived in heaven. You know, my parents had been very strict growing up, and so when I was in high school, I had to sort of hide my drinking, and and I felt that you know I I felt that. I wanted freedom, and to me, drinking was a lot about freedom and independence. And so when I arrived at college, to not have curfews and rules just felt like I had arrived in nirvana. So mm. I kind of hit the ground running, as they say, and I never drank, I would say, except for one period, I never drank daily. I I drank weekly, probably three times a week, very heavily. I mean, I'd probably have 15 or more drinks each time I drank, and, you know, college, again, I, I was in a sorority. I had a lot of friends. I graduated with honors. I I didn't have a ton of extracurriculars going on. I didn't really want to get up early to do any type of sports practice or anything like that. <laughs> I had some scheduling choices that were a little questionable, like no classes on Fridays. And, you know, there were little things looking back that I did that I know were because I was starting to rotate my life around my drinking. And mm-hmm. again, I, I think that I, I skated through in many ways. And I moved on to pursue a career in television production, much different than what I'm doing today. but I moved with my best friends to Los Angeles, and we you know we were living on the beach and it just it felt again like I had arrived in this new exciting place and that you know for me, a lot of what we're drinking was was about what's the next exciting thing I can do with my life and with my night It's a lot about that external fulfillment, and that's something that I've learned in recovery is not what life is all about. And I think I was also young and so moving into my young professional phase in, in Los Angeles, I had a talk with my friends and we agreed to kind of cut back on some of, you know, that I needed to, or we all needed to kind of watch ourselves and our drinking. And so I think I decreased and cut back my drinking a little bit, but on my 23rd birthday, I had another big episode of not remembering my night. And I promised myself that for six months, I was going to stop drinking and clear my system out and turn myself into a social drinker. So I committed that to myself and I stuck with it for five months and three weeks until a friend visited. And I decided at that time, well, it's close enough to six months, so what the heck? But, you know, I think doing that proved to other people, falsely proved and made them think like, wow, she really did that. I mean, people that weren't even that didn't even have a drinking problem were like kind of praising my, my abstinence. And it gave me the false sense of security around my drinking. But after that, I moved back to the East Coast and I moved to Nantucket Island again, and not another solution, not a solution for a drinking problem. And I spent the summer there. And from the minute I got there until I left, I, I had intended to go there and just really kind of find myself. I had been in Working for a big corporation television corporation in Los Angeles, and I really felt like Los Angeles was the problem. I was starting to during the time that I stopped drinking feel very um, anxious and and not well, but i didn 't know it was because i wasn 't drinking and i hadn 't received any treatment i didn 't understand that yeah. so I, I decided I was allergic to Los Angeles and I moved, and that that seemed to be a, a great solution at the time. And when I got to Nantucket, I was going to have some real philosophical time to write and to read. Walton had all these great plans. And then mm-hmm. I met people that drank like me and I was off and running for three months. So I then moved to Boston, quit drinking, cleansed the system and decided to go to graduate school for counseling psychology and get my master's degree. And I really, um, I think that I knew myself well enough that I needed a fulfilling profession, but I think subconsciously I thought if I understood myself just a little bit better, I could kind of get um, a hold of the thing. So I spent about four years total trying to control my drinking. I I would say that I spent, I was preoccupied with it. I wrote a lot when I'd, when I'd have these periods where I wouldn't drink, and then I tried controlling it with you know, having exercising before I went out, rotating with water, drinking beverages I didn't like. I tried everything and I always ended up drinking the same amount too much. And, mm-hmm. and then I started to feel guilt and shame around my drinking. I was, you know, in my mid-20s and I felt like somewhat hypocritical after I graduated from my master's degree. I had a job at a psychiatric hospital and I was working with um, clients who like eating disorders and I felt you know, they're working on their own recovery and here I am showing up and feeling, you know, like I'm not living my life in an authentic way. And I just saw a lot of guilt around my behavior when I was drinking and that it wasn't keeping in mind with the person that I know that I am. I hurt people. I said things that were mean. I behaved in ways, you know, just my inhibitions were gone. And just in terms of sexually, it just wasn't, you know, the person that I really am. So I, I think, I knew something was off, and I, I the, the process of controlling my drinking led me to that conclusion. So I ended up seeing a moderation management therapist who gave me very specific guidelines around my drinking, and I wasn't able to adhere to those. I thought that I was going to be able to, and I swore to her that I would be able to, but I just couldn't do it for long periods of time. And that was evidence for me that I had a problem and very helpful for me in figuring out and finally concluding that I was alcoholic. So... You know, after four years of trying to control my drinking on the Super Bowl of, ironically, right around this time around the the Super Bowl of 2004, I went out that night and then I woke up. When I woke up in the morning, I didn't know how I'd gotten where I was and I just knew I couldn't do it anymore. I just couldn't, I just was done. I just knew it. And I called my mother, I went to the doctor, and I went for an intake and I was told that I should, you know, try to go to self-help meetings and outpatient therapy, and if I couldn't manage staying sober at that level of care that I would need to go to rehab. And I thought rehab was for just real alcoholics, not
1: for people like me. <laughs> exactly. So, <Yeah>. Right, right. <laughs> so I
4: was like, I'm gonna make this work. I'm gonna make this work because I'm not really that, I'm not like those people. So I made it work. I mean, to this point, at the, <laughs> to this point I have. And it's been a full-time, you know, at times it felt like a full-time job. Early sobriety is really tough. It's like, you're just doing all this like me, me, me and meetings and therapy and group therapy. And I was doing some acupuncture and yoga and it was just a lot of self-care. And it felt like I felt worse before I felt better. And I think with recovery especially for people like myself that were doing rather well in life and were high functioning you sort of feel like i should be feeling better like i should be doing even yeah. better now that i'm not drinking that's the reward for me being you know the good person and not drinking but that's mm-hmm. not how it worked for me i actually lost friends during that period i felt less efficient at work i felt worse physically and psychologically so i didn't get it i didn't understand what this was all about but i i feel like I waited through that period, and I I reached out for help and support, and I was able after I'd say it took several years to feel like more than not I was doing okay, and that's the part that I think's hard is that delayed gratification in in recovery that you don't feel the way you want when you want to, and you know during that time I worked on writing. A book understanding the high functioning alcoholic and that was really helpful for me it was therapeutic to put all of my journal writings into you know one place and to look back on how long I had really struggled with my drinking and to have clarity around what was really wrong while it can feel shameful to admit you're alcoholic it's also it's also liberating to know that there's a name for what it is that you've been yeah. struggling with and that you're yeah. not. Just the weak willed person and and that acceptance took me a long time and I think for higher functioning folks, it does because the outside things are not what crumbles it 's inside and your emotions and the way you feel around drinking and your obsession around drinking it 's not that you necessarily lose your job or can't be a fit parent or can't you know keep your house or you know, it's not always about those outside things that lead a person to need to get sober. It's about your relationship to alcohol. And my recovery process has been, you know, not perfect. It's been difficult. It's harder to be sober than, you know, giving into an addiction is kind of the path of least resistance. And it's often easier, even though in the end, you don't feel better about yourself. It's just sometimes easier to not Feel that you have to fight, but but recovery ebbs and flows, and you know you have periods where it's it you're kind of it's easy, it's it's going, and and other times when you have to work a lot harder. So I feel really grateful. I'm coming up on nine years of sobriety in on February third, actually, and I you know the past year has been very challenging and amazing. I am a new mother. I have a one year old daughter and. That's something I could not have imagined doing when I was drinking because I was really all about me, you know, and I still am about me, but I'm able to to kind of compromise in that area. Yeah. They talk about gifts of sobriety, yes. I've had challenges, yes. And I can completely understand why it's so hard for mothers to get sober or to stay sober or to not turn to drinking at times. I understand, you know, now in a different way, how how hard it is just in terms of the lifestyle change. You know, I thought that getting sober was a huge lifestyle change, but I think becoming a parent is an even larger lifestyle change. And I'm actually grateful I got sober in advance <laughs> because yeah, yeah. I think it's really like doubly challenging for me to have become sober when I got pregnant or something like that. I, I completely respect that the timing that happens for people, but I know for myself, the order in which things have gone is the way they needed to go for me to keep my head on straight. I I think it's important that we all allow ourselves to be human, but also that we're proactive and sort of getting support around, you know, needing a little bit more help or needing to get ourselves to more, you know, more self-care types of things or social support around parenting or around recovery around whatever it is that there are people in your life that'll help you out and cover for you even as a parent or not enough for you to get where you need to go to take care of yourself. And I I think it's important for people, whether you're in recovery or not, that you take care of yourself. So yeah. So it's been, it's been an interesting journey and I'm really grateful to be on the other side to talk about it. I think, you know, when, when you go through a hard time, sometimes you just want to be on the other side so you can talk about what you've learned from it. And yeah. I'm mm-hmm. continuing to learn and, and hit walls, but, but then slowly I start to get on the other side. So I'm curious to hear, you know, other people's insights and questions, and thank you again for having me here tonight.
3: Wow. Thank, thank you, you so much, thank Sarah. Thank you so uh, much. Yeah. I, would I just wanted to say, this is Ellie. One quick thing. I, I love how you talk about how in recovery it sort of ebbs and flows, because I tend to get very impatient when I'm, I guess, flowing or ebbing, ebbing maybe, but that... He's, I, I developed kind of an awareness about behavior patterns that I never would have noticed when I was drinking, and then you become aware of them, and when you're engaging in behavior patterns that are sort of what I consider old behavior patterns that lead to misery, but you can see that you're not maybe working in the, your particular program of recovery to the best of your abilities, I get really frustrated with myself, and I think I want this bad patch to be over, and it, I think, you know, instant mm. gratification takes too long, and it Especially in early recovery, and maybe we can touch upon this later. Especially for people who were high functioning coming into recovery, is that syndrome of "Well, maybe I wasn't that bad" becomes more yeah. compelling because of that the ebbs and flows. I mean, you, you might start out feeling really great because you're sober, and then you hit your first speed bump. And if you had a really low bottom, it's easier to remember how bad it got. But if you have a higher bottom or you were high functioning when you came into recovery, that might right. be harder. To it is. To it is
4: and play it that tape in fun- your head. Yeah. Yeah. Higher functioning people tend to want to keep all the balls in the air and really have, you know, a lot of methods in which they kind of keep things looking okay. So when you're really not able to pull it off or you're just not feeling that you can engage in those coping mechanisms or maladaptive ones, then it's humbling, you know?
2: Do you ever wish for a little bit of
0: recovery inspiration on the go? Tiny Bubbles is a new podcast that brings you the best bits of the Bubble Hour podcast in quick little episodes, just 15 minutes long, but packed with wisdom, insight, and encouragement to live your life wholeheartedly and alcohol-free. Look for Tiny Bubbles wherever you get podcasts and subscribe today. Tiny Bubbles, little bits of recovery goodness brought to you by the Bubble Hour. Sometimes all you need is a little pep talk so you can get back to living that beautiful life you're building.
1: Sarah, I really related to so much of your story. Everything that you said, I was n- nodding my head madly because i was so related. I really appreciated what you said about how when you finally got sober, you were expecting to feel better because you've done all this hard work and you finally feel like you should be getting some sort of reward for making it this far. And what you found was it was really still hard. A lot of things about life were just not immediately fixed just because you were suddenly sober. And I can really relate to that and I think a lot of people can. It really does take a lot of work to keep going and to make your life what you want it to be. It doesn't just happen just because you gave up alcohol and got sober, I think a lot of people listening are high-functioning alcoholics. I know I certainly fit the, the bill. I was hoping maybe you could give maybe a brief description of what your definition of a high-functioning alcoholic is. You touched on it already a lot, but just kind of a sum it up for us so that people who aren't familiar with the term can kind of see exactly what you mean.
4: Sure. So I definitely didn't invent or coin the term. It's something I heard people referring to, and I just immediately knew that was me. And it actually, where I'm not at all saying it's a different, that it's a different form of alcoholism. High functioning alcoholics are alcoholics. It just manifests in a different way. What I actually mean by a high functioning alcoholic is a person who's able to fulfill their life's responsibilities, whether it be work, academics, being a parent. But they're showing up and they're doing a pretty average job or above average job. But at the same time, they're drinking alcoholically. That can be right. daily. That can be binge drinking. You know, it, it drinking comes in different patterns. So they're simultaneously engaging in their alcoholic drinking while they're also fulfilling their life roles. I didn't show up to work under the influence of alcohol. I showed up hungover. So I'm not necessarily, people have also misinterpreted and thought I was saying that people are high functioning like they're drunk all the time and they're, uh, you know, still going through life. Some people are maintenance drinkers. They're able to keep a steady stream of alcohol in their system. I wasn't one of those people. So, again, it comes in different forms and it's really about what it is out of in your life that you're expected to do and that you're showing up in an average or above average way. And the outside
1: is looking good. Right. Right. But the inside right. might be a mess. <laughs> it's very deceptive. It can be so deceptive because you can tell yourself, "But look, I'm doing all of this. I've gotten this promotion. I'm a great mom." That really, right? It just makes it harder to see the truth. That's an excellent point. It, it's
4: it's smoke sure. and mirrors, you know. It right. Really is because it has nothing to do with your drinking. Like, right. I think that there are rules that people set for themselves. I don't drink in the morning. I never miss mm-hmm. work. I never show, I never miss taking a test. I don't ever miss going to class. I have friends. I don't drink alone. There are a lot mm-hmm. of rules that people come up for, with for themselves. And I think when you look at your life and you're saying, I'm successful, people like me, I'm in relationships, mm-hmm. um, it's easy to say, well, I don't. I must not have a drinking problem. But they're, they're completely, they're not mutually exclusive. The, right. the drinking is about your relationship to alcohol. It has nothing to do with what's going on in your life.
1: Right. I agree. I was the queen of making up the rules right. to meet my needs. Mm-hmm. I
4: had to see myself, yes. <laughs> I, said, myself to see of,
1: I don't know where they came from that we
4: all <laughs> came to knew, know about the rules that make you not alcoholic. I just I don't oh, know right. where they came from. Right.
3: the same role. One of the, that, that sort of begs the question too, you know, one of the things that, one of the next questions we wanted to ask you are what were some of the common drinking patterns to look for in a high-functioning alcoholic? And I can, I can kind of remember, well, two things that, that, you know, the, I don't know, the kind of contortions that I would go through to try to convince myself that I didn't have a problem. I'm just going to have three glasses at night and I would find like a huge goblet and that was one glass that could hold a <laughs> Oh, that of wine. <laughs> That would just be three or just other I mean, things that you see, like not, not drinking patterns are common rules among people who are high-functioning that they are trying to control their drinking and use that sort of irrational denial. I don't know what, how else to determine, it, but I, I know that from talking to other people in recovery, there's a lot of commonality of things that we try to convince ourselves oh, yeah. otherwise.
1: I've definitely done the huge wine glass trick. Yeah. Three, gla- yeah, three glasses in yeah. one.
4: A paint glass, I had like a mixed drink and a paint glass, and I said it was one drink. One.
1: Right. Yeah. One right. drink. One standard So drink. I think the thing is you have to be really honest with yourself when you're doing these tests and really, really be honest with what you're doing. I think that's important to point out mm-hmm. because we can all fool ourselves into believing we're just having one glass when really we're having three in one. Yeah. Definitely, especially when I was counting drinks. I was, you know, for the moderation, I I
4: was really trying to count, but then I was lying to myself about the size and how much alcohol was in the drink. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, there's a lot of tricks people play. I mean, and I I think there are patterns for high-functioning folks that are similar to those who are lower-functioning as far as hiding piece. I mean, I wasn't a secretive drinker from my friends. I was maybe from work. Like I didn't let people at work know necessarily how much I was drinking, but my my social circle knew my deal, you know? But there are those that one, either hide in a drinking circle, right? So they pick a profession that conveniently involves a lot of drinking. The business world, you know, how a lot of people rotate networking events around alcohol. The legal profession I know has definitely battled like this problem so sometimes people choose professions where they can kind of be a chameleon and hide in there and not necessarily stand out hiding drinking period people sometimes will have you know when I did my book and interviewed people some of the things people commented on was they would drink before the event and that was something I did drink before and and some people even after the event so they'd show up to the event have two drinks right socially people see them drinking too they've drank before the event and then they go home and they drink more but yeah. there are definitely ways these people sometimes try to present as being a normal drinker, and again, I think that that it's really about being honest with yourself because you can always find people to drink with you, you know um, normalized right?
3: behavior yeah That's or you're by
4: yourself, you can hide it very well, yeah, definitely. Some of the rules are what I was mentioning earlier, just that, you know, I don't drink in the morning, that only real alcoholics do that. I don't drink daily because, you know, if you're Mm -hmm. a binge drinker, an episodic binge drinker, you're still an alcoholic by definition if you're, you know, obsessing about alcohol and and when you start drinking, you can't control your intake and behave in ways uncharacteristic of yourself. But but there are so many other patterns and tricks that we play, and some of it is just about the mere fact that you're doing well. You know, I think the biggest trick that high-functioning, individuals play on themselves is, you know, look at me, look at my life. Things are fine on the outside. Therefore, I must not have a drinking problem. But it's not just their belief. That's society's belief that there's a lot of secondary denial around a high-functioning alcoholic. Their loved ones, for a variety of reasons, may not acknowledge that that person is an alcoholic. They may be the breadwinner. They may be other reasons why it benefits that loved one to not acknowledge the alcoholism. So, and and misinformation, you know, I think there's a lot of misinformation about what it means to be alcoholic. And I think a huge portion of denial in our society is based on misinformation.
1: I think a big part for me was the, the personality traits, like you kind of already talked about but I would say but I'm I'm really a good communicator and I'm outgoing and I'm, I have a great, you know, I have a personality. Yeah. I'm able, I'm really able to, I have good people skills. I can, I'm great at people pleasing and I know what to say and how to say it. And I was always full of energy and I had a meticulous work ethic, I always have. So I did not fit the mold of a, necessarily what I thought of as an alcoholic. But I think that what you have said Is the personality traits are often exactly that you don't fit the mold, and you do have a desire to succeed. I know that I always was very much had a desire to succeed, and I was always likable, and I think that that can also be kind of tricky because again, it doesn't match what society thinks of when we think of an alcoholic.
3: You know, it's interesting, Elliot. I'm listening to this and I, I, at the end of my personal drinking would not be described as a high-functioning alcoholic, but that period, sort of crossing the quote-unquote invisible line from high-functioning to very obvious daily drinking, happened very quickly over about a two-week period of time. And so I'm thinking back to sort of how I progressed to that stage and how tricky denial can be because, you know, you're saying I I don't drink in the morning or I don't, I would put a line in the sand and then I would cross it. And the things that I would tell myself Uh about crossing that line, I believed. And that's why I was such a convincing liar, because I believed the things I was telling myself. And I uh just kept going over these lines and over these lines, and each time I would tell myself, well, that was unusual because of X, or this is, you know, I won't do it again because of Y. Yeah, just a one-time thing. And I did that all the way into a physical addiction to alcohol, which is a whole other level of awful and so, so I think that the denial piece, what I, what I love about open discourse like this is that by sharing stories and, and comparing patterns and talking about things that uh, there's such commonalities in the way that this disease progresses, in the way that we think to ourselves and talk to ourselves and treat ourselves as we progress in this disease especially among women, really, you know, hearing some sort of truth that resonates with you that you say, oh my gosh, I do that. So maybe I should consider the fact that I have a problem. Mm-hmm. I kind of back way up and, and look back and think the minute I started making rules around my drinking, I wish I had been thinking about that was the problem because I don't make rules around, you know, eating cheese. I <laughs> wish I didn't get oh, it.
4: Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. I know I always use it. I know I use asparagus as an example, but yeah, it's, you know, if you have to control something it's out of control and if you continue to eat asparagus or broccoli and you get sick and you just keep eating it. It's just interesting. You know, it's just something to look at. You know, what you were talking about personality traits. And I, when I did interviews for my book, I asked the high functioning uh, alcoholics who are in recovery, they're in recovery when I asked. Um, When I interviewed them, what, you know, what was it about your personality that allowed you to succeed while you were drinking alcoholically? And a lot of what they responded were what you just listed off, that they're very personal, they're personable, gregarious, people pleasers, impeccable work ethic, perfectionist, just all of those traits, but... The, the most fascinating part to me is that those traits that help you to succeed in, in your life to, be, to achieve what you want to achieve and to overcompensate for your drinking are exactly what gets in the way when you get sober.
0: Take Good Care is a new collection of recovery readings inspired by the Bubble Hour. If you love the encouragement and support you find here on this podcast, then this new book is for you. Visit TheBubbleHour.com for more information or check the show notes for a link to purchase. You'll find Take Good Care on Amazon Worldwide. Take good care for recovery reading inspired by The Bubble Hour, the perfect gift for yourself and friends. Help others find the message of recovery we champion on The Bubble Hour. Plus, get access to the entire backlist ad-free by joining us on Patreon. Patron support helps with the ongoing expense of making free versions of the show available, as well as the cost to make new content like our spinoff podcast, tiny bubbles, become a bubble hour patron today at patreoncom slash the hour and help us help others through stories of strength and hope.
4: Part of why it's challenging. I think for um, high functioning alcoholics to get help, and I you know I work with them in residential treatment, some you know some of my clients are some of them aren't, but I have found that high functioning clients are more challenging because they have these defenses that lead them to believe that their way works, so why am I going to listen to what you're saying? like mm-hmm. I was successful i don't need your suggestion.
1: It took everything I had to listen to sober people who were in recovery and just blindly have faith that these people knew more than I did because I tend to be kind of a rebel when it comes to someone telling me what to do because I've always done quite well, you know, I thought. So I thought, like you said, some of the things that made me so successful were a huge hindrance to me finally getting sober. I had to really swallow my pride and it humbled me Now, looking back, I see that it all happened for a reason, and I'm grateful for it, but it took a lot of me just going with what people who had gone before me told me and following their suggestions and just doing it blindly, but it worked. I was willing to put away my pride and focus on what these people who knew more than I knew were telling me to do.
3: At the time that I got sober, I was working at a global professional services firm, and you know, it was a big job and life on an airplane and all that kind of stuff, and I also had two kids at home, and I was basically told, you have to give up that big job, you have to give up these things that you've defined yourself with if you want to be able to hang on to your sobriety, because
4: mm-hmm. I
3: didn't, until I got sober, I didn't realize that the, the alcohol intake was actually sort of holding together this character I had developed for myself. But I, it took me about four months into sobriety to realize Maybe I don't really like that job. I don't like the person I am in that job. I don't. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that the two were feeding each other in mm-hmm. so many ways. That I wasn't introspective at all. But being told that if your sobriety is going to, you know, if you're going to be able to maintain it, you have to simplify your life with not something a high functioning perfectionist person wants oh. to here. Right. I think it's pulling you together, and it's, it was actually slowly ripping me apart. I, I realized I'm a more anxious person than I thought I was. That I want more mm-hmm. downtime than I thought I did. You know, my whole entire personality changed once I had enough sobriety under my belt to realize I didn't even know what I liked and what I didn't like because I just Mm. if it was challenging I went for it. I thought those goals were ambitious and if I'm ambitious and I'm going upwards then I can't be a drunk.
1: Like you Ellie I discovered after sobriety that all of these little things that I thought kept me going I didn't even really know who I was during most of my adult life just because I did the next thing. And I never really gave it much thought. It was just an automatic response. I just kept going to achieve more and be better. But really, I don't think that that was true of, to my, really, my character at all. Right. Bill large right. You
3: discover who you are. You surprise yourself sometimes with what, mm-hmm. you, what you find. The question that's come in over the the chat function that we have here it says, I've qu- says, considering the high statistics, do you think there is a social change? It keeps moving up the screen here. Do you? Let me see. Just a second. You think there's a social change happening about the stigma of alcoholism? That's an interesting question.
4: That is an interesting question. I don't know that that's measurable, but I I do know that that's been kind of my biggest point in coming out around my own recovery was you know around the time that I my book was published, I made a choice to go public with not that I'm a famous person, but in my career and in my personal life for everybody that knows me to know that about me. And I remember having second guessing that and being, you know, afraid of other people's opinions. And I, I did have the thought that, you know, if if I don't have the courage to come forward and talk about it, then how are other people going to? So I I've felt personally liberated by being honest about it and being able to talk about it on the radio, on TV, in, in lectures and, you know, professionally. I know I've had clients that, have still expressed that they feel that that shame and that stigma. But then, you know, I think there are people, more people publicly that, even celebrity-wise, that have come forward around their own struggles with alcoholism and addiction. The Los Angeles area, there's my understanding from people is that there's less of a stigma because, you know, I think people in Hollywood are a little bit more open about some of the issues that they've struggled with and that there's a lot of rehab programs out there and the culture is sort of, People are just open and honest about if they're sober or not. I think in other areas of the country there's not that same culture. You know, privacy is definitely important, but if, you know, if your anonymity and privacy is getting to the point where you're not willing to seek help for an addiction you have, that's definitely getting in the way.
3: Sometimes you mentioned earlier in the show that with high functioning alcoholics there can be it can be hard to convince or there can be a level of denial around the high functioning alcoholic. And maybe sticking a little bit to your experiences with people who say, you know, I need you home because I need to go to my meeting or I need to go here in order to maintain my sobriety. If they don't have the full buy-in of the people around them, mm. that they even have a problem? Do you see that? And how do people overcome obstacles like that?
4: Yeah, definitely. I think that it's easy for people around a high-functioning alcoholic to minimize that person's problem because it didn't seem, you know, from the outside that there was anything that bad going on for them or that they were struggling as, as deeply as they may have been. So it can sometimes take time for loved ones to get onto the same page. I know in the treatment program I work at, try to support families in understanding a little bit more about what was going on for that individual. But there's also a family education program that people attend and along with support meetings. But we also encourage people to go to Al-Anon and to read and educate themselves about this condition. I do think over time when families are open um, to learning, you know, in a slower way, because I think the, the alcoholic tends to work on their recovery in a more intense way, and sometimes loved ones are, like, following at a snail's pace. But that openness will allow them to to see what went on, and, and, you know, hopefully the alcoholic can feel confident in expressing how difficult this was for them and what they were hiding through their overcompensating professionally or personally. Um, But it's a process for both. You know, the recovery process isn't just about the alcoholic. Like, I understand that, you know, it is all about us when we're... We're drinking and we're me, 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 me. But when we get sober, it, it's also about the family's recovery. And everyone has this process that goes on at different paces. So it's really a lot of moving parts and it's being patient with each other.
3: Right. Right. Thank you. I've, that's, that was helpful to me because somebody was actually just asking me that question the other day. There's another question that came in over the chat. It says, after nine years of recovery, how do you maintain your sobriety? Mm. If you're comfortable answering that.
4: Yeah. Well, first I don't drink. So that, that helps. Um, Right. That's very helpful. Well, we got to keep it simple. Sometimes people get into all these like really intricate ways that they stay sober, but I have, I do utilize social support through a recovery program. I do continue to attend self-help meetings on a weekly basis. I attend therapy. I do get help for outside issues in terms of mental health. So I have, struggled with issues around anxiety. And that's something that I, you know, I continue to address and make sure that I take care of myself in that way. So some of it is self-care and knowing my limits in terms of scheduling and not overbooking myself, having downtime, you know, every day, getting enough sleep, taking care of myself. So I do have a young child and I do have a very supportive husband and my family's been really helpful. So I do have people that, you know, allow me so, like, take care of my child so that I can do things that I need to do for myself. Exercise is also something that is important to me um, because it's really – it's just being outside has been really healing for me. And connecting – feeling connected to nature is something that I, I feel, like, helps me to connect spiritually in some way. And, like, that's just been – a practice that's been really helpful for me. But there's not just one thing. I also feel like having other friends who are sober has been really important. And being sober is a lifestyle change. So if you're the only person living that lifestyle, that eventually will not be fun. Good point. Or, yeah. as You're right. That is possible. And I think a lot of times people want to sort of pretend that they're not that, that they don't need to have sober support, that they can just live their drinking life by being sober. And I have found through the years that I really had to make initially a lot of changes in my life to not put myself in the position where I'm living that lifestyle, you know. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that lifestyle. I loved going out to bars and staying out late. I don't live my life that way anymore regardless like of having a child. Even before that, I had to make some changes about just the activities I engaged in on the weekends and, you know, what I did for fun and my reward system. Everything had to change. Mm-hmm. So it's a. I would say it's a lifestyle change, but also maintenance. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't just go back. Like, it's an uh-huh. ongoing maintenance. Speaking from personal experience,
3: it can sneak up on you. You start to feel, quote-unquote, better. You know, when you're doing that mm. well, that maintenance really well over a long period of time, it can be easy to stop seeing little flippages here and there of things that you're doing for yourself or to maintain your program. And it's hard to be that Mindful of it for an extended period of time. And I think that's where the ebbs and flows and recovery come into play. And they-
1: I heard you say the way you have fun has changed, but you still have a lot of fun. I think a lot of people are convinced that once they get sober, that's it. No more fun. Life is just going to be complete gloom and doom. But I think what I've found is uh, the, the longer time I've had, the more my idea of fun changes. You know, I find so much joy and fun and things that I never would have imagined back when I drank that I would have ever thought were fun. I think it's important to point out, though, that we can still have a lot of fun in this sober life. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's it's totally true. I have to say, you know,
4: sometimes people will say, You know, I had more fun, I have more fun in recovery, or things got really bad, so their perspective on drinking was very negative. I think for me, I tended to romanticize my drinking days, so it's been hard for me to find things in sobriety that feel as exciting as those times in my life, but I I actually try to not compare my drinking life to my sober life. They're almost separate existences um, when I compare them. I really get confused and muddled up because my life was highs and lows when I was drinking and my life is more Mm -hmm. somewhere in the middle now and that can feel boring um, or mundane for some people and at times I think I've felt less spontaneous and so there are pieces of it that you still have to kind of like work on, you know, like Mm -hmm. things that are interesting to you that you want to learn about and yeah, fun is completely changed. I would 100% agree with that, but it has to. You know, Mm -hmm. right. it has to, and, you know, and it's the gratitude for noticing the small things that we wouldn't have noticed before.
3: We did have another question come in over the chat, which is interesting. It says, is calling oneself a high-functioning alcoholic another way of, quote-unquote, being unique and allowing oneself to remain in partial denial about the effects of alcoholism?
4: Hmm. That's a great question. Think that it can be, and as I had sort of qualified before, that I'm not saying it's a different type, it's that it's not alcoholism or a lesser form of alcoholism. It's the way that it manifests for a person. So there was actually a study in um, 2007 by the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, and it placed alcoholism into five different subtypes, one of which was the functional subtype, which is closest to what I'm um, talking about in terms of the high functioning alcoholic. There were the young adult and several others including including a subtype that was more referring to people who were lower lower bottom or kind of the stereotypical the chronic and alcoholic and that was only nine percent so wow. there are a majority, wow. it seems that there are a majority I know and that that's where the stereotype sort for the alcoholic had come from that smallest subtype um, so i I saw actually when that study came out that it was really validating what I had suspected, that alcoholism manifests in different ways. I think that the term is, it can be used if you want to use it in a way to make yourself, you know, make a person wants to make themselves feel like they're, you know, that kind of alcohol, like a better alcoholic. I don't don't know people can (laughs) use words in really strange ways, but but what I've found from more of a positive um, note around that term is that, people will hear the term and maybe never would have admitted before that they were alcoholic and suddenly saying, no, that's me. That's me. Warm, and I think right. there is, yeah, there is a, a really negative connotation to the word alcoholic. And I know for myself, I couldn't see myself as the A word. You know, that was just mm-hmm. like, really? I, I mean, I, I do see myself that way now. But, but I think that it helps people to get it and understand where they fit in in this picture because our image is so far off because of the stereotypes about alcoholics in our society mm-hmm. so yeah i do think you know of course people can use it and say you know i'm different or i'm like these people are not like those people but in the end over time when you've been sober for a while you don't get so caught up in the story um you're less caught up in that and more around you know being feeling that you're on the same page as other people in recovery and not getting so preoccupied around what you know quote-unquote type of alcoholic somebody is. Me in the beginning, yeah, in the beginning I really needed to identify because I felt like I couldn't, I didn't believe I was like other people, so I needed to identify, and I probably yeah. had that same tendency to think I was unique. I thought I was the mm-hmm. highest functioning person to ever get sober. You know what I mean? like, in right. time, like I yeah. Wasn't. It was ridiculous, but, you know, I've, I've obviously come to see it differently.
3: That's sort of, of the opinion is whatever gets you to start walking down the road, it's fine you know, that it's it, it can be very challenging to walk into any kind of self-help or recovery meeting and, you know, have this expectation that, oh, I'm going to have to say the A word. If people can get educated about these different, the, the different forms that the same disease can manifest itself, is I think it's very helpful, I think. Sitting in rehab two weeks in, and they were talking about the disease element of it, and I... That, then, because That was just the littlest crack I needed to wrap my mind around, the fact that I can be an alcoholic and it's not my fault that I'm an alcoholic. That's, that's all that I really needed to hear after mm-hmm. years and years of yeah. fighting and it, fighting it. So, you know, get whatever gets you there, so... gets you there. Mm-hmm. It's great. Basically, the approach to recovery, is it the same for high-functioning alcoholics? Is it, is it harder for them to walk through the tougher patches because maybe they can convince themselves that they could try again? What do you hear from people that, that maintain sobriety and how they overcome that obstacle?
4: Yeah, you know, I don't have research to back up exactly what I'm saying. It's just something I've observed, like patterns I've seen for people that are lower functioning that get sober versus people who are higher functioning. I think there's very unique challenges, Um, one of which is when a person has lost everything and then they get sober and they start to get something back, like family starts to talk to them or they get employable, those things are very tangible and positive. When high-functioning individuals who kind of had those outside things Begin with, then feel less equipped to hold on to them, or start having problems with either loved ones or with you know maintaining a high a high stress job or being a parent. That can feel the opposite. It can feel like I got sober and now things are getting worse for me. The praise, the feedback from other people, can often be negative for people who are higher functioning. They may have drank with other people that were you know doing pretty well themselves, and so when that person gets sober, they're not getting. You know, high fives for that. They're getting right. questions and people challenging them and minimizing their drinking. That happened mm-hmm. with me personally, me too. and then I've seen other people who are low functioning, and people are so grateful they stopped drinking. They were destroying things, you know, right. left and right. So, so there are differences as far as the feedback system, the like delayed gratification, and. And also just the connecting with and identification process in the recovery community, there are probably more people who are lower functioning that have gotten sober. And therefore, when you hear stories and read things online and read books out there, there's a lot more to connect to if you've hit a lower bottom and, mm-hmm. or I should say are lower functioning, you can hit a low bottom and actually be high functioning. So let me correct myself, are, are lower functioning and you're not able to kind of keep up with life. Um, or your or your alcoholism progressed in a way, in a in a different way. That's the way I like to look at it. So yeah, there's I think there's challenges again back around the personality trait, just sort of having these perfectionist kind of obsessive and you know, overachieving tendencies, that it it makes it harder to do things differently. And to listen to suggestions and make changes because there is a feeling that what I was doing wasn't that wrong. Like, you know, I may have had a problem in drinking, but the rest of my life was fine. So back off, you know, with your suggestions. And, you know, I think that everything needs to change when you get sober. Everything. And if you're only willing to change the not drinking piece, that is going to be a really, really long, long journey in terms of sobriety. Um, And I was slower to change something. I didn't listen to every suggestion that came my way, Um, you know, but I was willing, I I was completely, you know, accepting that I was alcoholic and needed to be sober and couldn't have alcohol in my life. So there were pieces of it that I had accepted, but then there were pieces of it that I felt like, you know, I only need to do half as much as you people.
3: (laughs) Right, Um, right.
4: And everyone has their own path. I think that we need to not get caught up in, like, doing things exactly like other people, but realizing and checking in with ourselves every so often about, is this working for me? Do I need to up this, lower this? Like, just engaging that stuff. And that's, you I know, agree. that's the process. Yeah.
3: Well, we um, really appreciate your time, Sarah. Lisa, do you have anything else that you want to add? Or no, add? I
1: just, well, I will just say thank you so much, Sarah. I really think that you doing this tonight will help so many people and I just admire all the work you've done and we just thank you for joining us
3: absolutely thank you so much and Sarah you're a tremendous resource to so many people and I'm very very grateful that you joined us on the show tonight
1: absolutely thank you Sarah all right thanks so much thanks Billy bye bye-bye I
2: own it I did that not proud but that was me and when I face it take back a little dignity not looking excuses I just want to be free from the power, weakness, head on me. In a dark corner is where shame lies to hand. We think you're strong just cause you'll keep it on the side. It just stays in wait there. Rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can shine When you see. Oh, I did that Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free From power Oh yes, Shout it out.